p.m. East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. Later in the show, our live musical artists coping with the pandemic, we talk to the vocalists of the popular local cover band, Star Farm. Also, my weekly conversation with political scientist Matt Grossman on the 2020 presidential campaign. First up, though, protesters are expected back in Lansing on Monday and Wednesday as they press their opposition to facets of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's emergency shutdown order. Last Wednesday, thousands filled central Lansing streets and clogged highways. The noisiest among them captured the media's attention. But many protesters stayed in their cars as they attempted to circle the Capitol. One of them was Randy Clark, a 63-year-old retired school teacher from Flint. Uh, Mr. Clark, what uh, motivated you to attend the rally uh, in Lansing on Wednesday? Um, a couple things, really. I mean... I've I've been home, you know. I've gone to the store, basically been to a store one time to get a prescription. Um, I'm social isolated. I'm 60, over 60. I've got diabetes. I got high blood pressure, so I'm at risk. So I'm just I'm taking careful. But I've seen um, a lot of my family members that have lost jobs. They've lost their um, insurance. They're afraid of my niece is about to lose her business because most of that happens now. If this is extended later on, it won't be. And I think part of one of the things that really made me want to go was even in Virginia, New York, and California, the states that have are, are higher than us in um, cases and that have extensions already through May and June now, those states still allow people like landscapers to work. They can work safely. They work with social distancing according to CDC guidelines. I believe I have not found another state that has landscapers as non-essential. And we have nurseries. Nurseries, if they're too large, they cannot even do contactless delivery. And there are, I have friends on the other side of the state who grow plants. They have they network with people who grow plants that sell to Walmart. They have contracts with Walmart and and other big box stores. And those people, um, they're gonna they can lose their whole business if this goes on. One one nursery had to compost twenty five thousand Easter lilies. You figure if they just made a dollar profit, that's twenty five thousand dollars of their income that's just gone. I guess it's just. If if they can do it in every other state and all the other governors are doing it, and our governor's been, she's been there for about a year and a half, and she's not doing what they're doing. And I think a lot of people can safely work with social distancing. I know that for me, um, social distancing, the whole purpose of it, as far as I understand it, is not to stop the spread. We're not going to stop the spread by staying home unless we stay home indefinitely. Um, but it is to slow the spread so that the disease lasts a longer period of time, but that the hospitals are not overwhelmed. And at this point, um, I know like Illinois already announced that their hospitals aren't going to be overwhelmed. Novi. Um, at the center in Novi, they were going to have a thousand beds. They went to 500. Now they're at 250. 
Michigan Medical in Ann Arbor actually said because the curve is significantly flattening, they aren't even opening their extra hospital. So that is already going down, and there's actually no way, there's no magic number where, for instance, on June 10th, I can go out and I'm going to be safe. But um, I guess I can't, I guess I'm one of those people that, you know, I don't think it's either we take COVID-19 seriously or we think that people should lose their jobs in their homes and, you know, I, I, I think there's not an either or. I think we can be concerned about both. And the group that I actually was with was um, Michiganders Against Excessive Quarantine. And that's really what we want. We want some people to get back to work that can do it safely. And the governor is recently, as uh, 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 today, Friday, when we're recording this conversation, says she is hoping to reopen things uh, within a couple of weeks if the facts uh, dictate. Uh, isn't there some room here to allow the governor, who has the big picture, to call the shots during this emergency. Uh, granted, we're all sacrificing a lot, uh, but uh, if the governor doesn't get to call the shots uh, in the way she thinks best, why do you think you know more than she does? Um, I don't think I know more, but I would say why does she think she knows more than the CDC and Governor Cuomo, Governor Nordstrom, Governor Newsom, pretty much every other governor in this country. Why does she, what does she have as an inexperienced governor that gives that information that she says, for instance, when she spoke about landscapers, she actually said we can't have low-income people going out and touching gas pumps and going to the store. Why are all those other governors allowing that? What information does she have that none of them has? Or are they purposely allowing the spread of the disease? I mean, the thing is, uh, it's not, it's not, oh, I, we got to give her because she has information. She, if she has information, she has to share it because what is she protecting us from? If the curve is flattening and Actually, I would actually tend to believe University of Michigan Hospital, Michigan Medical. I would believe those doctors that say it's significantly flattening over what she has said because she is, um, I, I guess I don't, I don't understand why, what she has that the others don't have. I mean, I'm not saying I know. I'm saying she needs to share with other places because shouldn't all they have all these other um, businesses that she has labeled non-essential that they and the CDC have as essential? I mean, they're working in all their states. We're not saying open the state up. We're saying let some people work that are working in every other state. 
we're talking to Randy Clark, a retired school teacher from Flint, Michigan, who participated in Wednesday's protest in Lansing. You're listening to City Pulse here on 89FM, the impact. Uh, Mr. Clark, let's turn to the demonstration itself. First of all, did, were you on the Capitol lawn? Did you stay in your car? Or what no. did you do? Our group, our first, <laughs> it was like the first and third, and there were like three times. Our first rule was you stay in your car and you practice social distancing. <clears throat> that was our first and foremost rule. We never got out of our car. So, um, and I would say most of the thousands of people that were there weren't. Now, there were other groups that had planned for the same day. And the, and basically, and you're going to have some people that come in that, um, I know the other day I went on the site and there were like 300, um, like there were 370, and when I refreshed, it went up down to 330,000 people. And I think that there were people that basically that said, hey, I want to do this, but they don't have the same goals as what we have. And you can't stop those people from just coming into Lansing. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that you have all kinds of people that are upset. Some people say, you know, open it up. We are just saying do what other every other governor in the country is doing or explain why besides touching gas pumps because um i mean my my son works um my son works in delivery in tennessee he can drive up here and go to our family cabin all the way from tennessee and that is acceptable i who am isolated here who buy my groceries down here and bring them up with me because it's so much cheaper down here, I cannot safely go to my cabin because I'm a risk, but he can go to my cabin. He's got to drive a whole lot further. He's he's much more apt to spread uh, the virus. And, I mean, there are a lot of things. I mean, lottery tickets are, are essential. And, I mean, it, it, the whole thing is people say, oh, you can buy paint, you can buy seeds, you can buy plants. Yes, but... It's not about me buying it. It's the people that are selling to some of these places that now are being restricted. And the whole idea that I have to go to Walmart if I want to get some food and want to get a lottery ticket, then I have to go over to Ace Hardware to pick up a pipe. We just had our sewer pipe clogged. We had to go get stuff for our pipe. Then I have to go to Farm and Fleet to buy some fresh plants. When I could have bought those all in one spot. So I think they can social people can social distance and they can put in the, the safeguards that some of them are doing. But I don't I guess I just see that there are a lot of inconsistencies and other people do too. Very good, Randy Clark. Uh, uh, thank you so much for being on City Pulse. Thank you very much, Mr. Short. I appreciate it. You're listening to City Pulse on eighty nine FM the Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. What did last week's demonstration tell us about the 2020 presidential campaign? It's time for our weekly talk with uh, MSU political scientist, Matt Grossman. Matt, on, third, on Wednesday, rather, we witnessed a rather large demonstration here that Governor Whitmer described as a, a basically a pro-Trump political rally. Well, what 
are the implications of what we saw on Wednesday for the uh, 2020 presidential campaign? Well, protests um, do have uh, some uh, electoral effects, uh, and the overall uh, pattern is that conservative protests help Republicans and liberal protests help Democrats, unsurprisingly. Um, uh, there are usually a lot more liberal protests than conservative protests, but there's some evidence uh, from a new book called The Power of uh, Mi- Minorities uh, that um, actually conservative protests uh, have a bigger bang for the buck uh, for each protest. So even though they protest less, they get more benefit in terms of helping the the Republican Party. So there is some baseline evidence that you would expect um, any public demonstration to to be effective. Um, In terms of this uh, particular one, I think uh, they were obviously sort of coordinated with conservative groups and with some help uh, from elected Republicans and that uh, means that uh, it's a sign that the the early, um, at least, Face saving um, uh, going along with the, the governor um, has ended, and now we're in a, a period of more polarization around the executive orders. Uh, in 2016, Hillary Clinton uh, hurt herself by referring to the deplorables. Um, does the governor need to tread lightly here? Uh, and uh, what does Biden do <laughs> with uh, this kind of a demonstration? Well, I think the the governor uh, did um, by by changing the executive order in a way that's slightly different than other states. Uh, she did um, give an opening to her opponents um, to uh, harp on those differences. Um, some of them have obviously been um, extrapolated uh, far beyond their actual impact, and I think probably most people upset are, are not necessarily upset about. Gardening and, and home improvement restrictions at big box stores, but are you know upset more generally about the, the shutdown of of work. So um, I think you know I think there is reason for the governor to be signaling what kinds of things would allow uh, Michigan uh, to get back to work and allow uh, some of the restrictions to be lifted. Um, not necessarily calendar, but I think uh, the Senate GOP, for example, has released a five stage kind of plan with some metrics and they they might not all be be reasonable but I, I do think the inclination to provide people with the roadmap forward um is a good one uh, that Whitmer will have to respond to. I'm not sure it's going to have that much impact on national politics. Um you know, overall people tend to credit or blame the president's party uh, for what goes on uh, in an administration. So the best thing for uh, the Republicans is is simply for the problem to to be solved. Um and uh, that doesn't necessarily appear to be imminent. Uh, these uh, so-called deplorables, are they essentially the angry white voters that Trump uh, was able to capture? And is he capturing them again? Well, I think people who show up to a protest are normally uh, pretty are pretty politically engaged overall. And um are unlikely to be swing voters. So, um, you know, I think it's more likely to be just people who have connections to conservative uh, groups and conservative social networks um, uh, who who actually show up at the the protest. Um, But that doesn't mean that they can't convince um, other people uh, to to support uh, their their side. Um, So, 
uh, you know, I think that I'm not sure that the demographics of the protesters reveal anything other than that it was Republicans and conservatives mostly. Um, but but that doesn't mean that that the uh, new voters that Trump won last time aren't still winnable for him this time. That does not mean they are. So. Right. So, yeah, so they they are still winnable. Uh, most polls show that, um, you know, most people who weren't went from Obama to Trump are still supporting Trump. Um, so that, you know, that's an important part of his his constituency. So do you see his performance uh, at those daily briefings and in general as uh, uh, making a case for himself that those his base is uh, going to buy? Or do you think that uh, they're going to see a country in chaos and economy uh, falling into a depression? Yeah, it's hard to message against, um, you know, real world events that people are, are seeing. So, um, you know, you can talk up the economy all you want um, and that can change people's perceptions who already agree with you a little bit. But at a certain point, they're going to notice <laughs> the, the free fall and the increases in uh, unemployment. Um, it, it's also just hard to shift the blame. Uh, not that the president's not trying. He certainly is. Uh, but. Uh, normally, people again are going to credit the, or blame the, the president and the president's party. Um, so it's hard to get around that. Um, and so I think the the trouble is, um, you know, they're focused on the messaging war. They're focused on uh, what they do best, um, talking about the the liberal media and talking about the the uh, great things that the the president um, is is supposedly doing. Um, but in the end, it's going to matter what the actual course of the epidemic is and the actual course of the economy. And those things are much harder to shift um, with, a, with a press conference. We're talking to uh, political science uh, professor Matt Grossman from Michigan State University. You're listening to City Pulse here on 89FM, uh, The Impact. So now we've got perhaps a, a great opportunity for the presumed Democratic candidate, Joe Biden, uh, to take advantage of and going after Trump, except he can't get out in public and he doesn't seem to be uh, capturing a lot of attention uh, digitally. Uh, how, is, how is Biden going to turn this into an advantage? Uh, he isn't um, the center of attention by any stretch. Um, it's very hard to be um, when this is um, erasing all other all other news. Um, pretty huge events in the campaign, like the, the former president's endorsement uh, this week, um, are still not even getting much uh, attention. Um, and so I don't know that it's specific to Joe Biden. I think it's just a problem of, of breaking through um, in this time. Uh, that said, uh, the, the Super PAC uh, is running um, anti-Trump, pro-Biden ads, including in Michigan, um, that uh, chastise the president uh, for downplaying the severity of the crisis and promote an alternative plan uh, that, that Biden has to deal with it. And I think those have some potential to, to be effective. Um, but uh, normally advertising you know, this far in advance is, you know, is unlikely to stick. So it will really depend on, on how things look as we get closer to, to November. Um, a lot of talk uh, about uh, Biden now trying to uh, select a running mate uh, focuses on uh, the uh, 
Democratic candidate for uh, governor last time in Georgia, Stacey Abrams. Do you see her as a plus or a minus or uh, just another vice presidential candidate no one will pay attention to? Well, the um, you know the the effects of vice presidential candidates are, are generally weak, um, and to the extent that we've been able to find them, they tend to come in their home states. Um, so that's one reason that Gretchen Whitmer is on the list, um, and it's uh, potentially a um, play for for Georgia if Stacey Abrams were to be uh, selected. Um, but you know, overall, the effect is pretty minimal. Um, of course, the other considerations. Um, you know, Biden has been very explicit about uh, gender and race being um, considered. And so uh, Stacey Abrams is one of the country's most prominent African-American women leaders. Uh, and so that um, might at least produce a storyline that, that could be helpful. But we just don't have a lot of evidence that that is going to provoke, uh, say, increased uh, women or African-American support or turnout. Um the black woman on the ticket uh, reminds me of uh, Shirley Chisholm, uh, the U.S. representative who uh, was a presidential candidate in 1972 uh, and uh, didn't do very well, a very important symbolic race. And it, made, it does make me wonder, are you, are you watching this uh, new uh, series on FX called Mrs. Democracy. Uh, yes, we're, we're into the same three episodes that uh, you apparently are, so we, <laughs> we watched the, the Shirley Chisholm uh, portion as well. Great I, I, I do not remember 19, Democrats in 1972 expressing the views of uh, Bella Abzug that George McGovern was clearly going to beat Richard Nixon. Uh, <laughs> what's your recollection of the history of that? <laughs> well, um, it's interesting from a political perspective that actually, if you if you look at the the party platforms um, on women's rights in 1972, they're they're virtually identical. Um, the there was a lot of success um, that I think the series will get into later uh, on the Republican side initially as well, um, and there was. You know, the, there was pushback um, in the same places that they that they faced pushback among the Democrats. Um, but uh, the the 1972 uh, convention uh, was, you know, was historic, and a lot happened uh, there. Um, but I think the the women's um, women's political caucus part of the convention was sort of secondary to the to the broader uh, public perception uh, that uh, George McGovern was a very uh, lefty candidate. Um, but you saw a little bit of that uh, in the in the interesting uh, uh, portrayal of uh, their campaign and in, in trying to kind of get out of that um, get out of that uh, reputation that they had already uh, had already found um, for. Uh, being too far out on issues like abortion. All right. Well, let's be sure we both watch episode four before next week, and uh, we'll uh, we can give our reviews to the public then. Sounds good. All right, Matt Grossman. Thanks so much for being on City Pulse. Good to be with you. This is City Pulse on eighty nine FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Next up, Whitney Spots the lead singer of the popular local cover band Star Farm. Her band has, of course, been sidelined by the shutdown order during the pandemic. She and arts editor Skylar Ashley discuss its impact on the industry and what the future of live music might look like.
why don't you just explain what the band is going through right now as you are unable to perform? Has this been a um, loss of you know personal income for you and the other members of the band? Um, what are yeah. you experiencing right now? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, we are... Um, we are an LLC. It is a substantial source of income for us. And so that definitely has been um, felt by all of us. Um, it's been very strange because as well as being, you know, monetary income, it's also, you know, it's a creative outlet. And it's a, it's a, for me, it's like, it's almost like therapy. Like if I don't feel sane if I'm not performing. So that's been very strange. Um, we're actually having a band meeting tomorrow by a, I think we're going to use the house party app or something because we haven't talked to each other in person in two months, I think. I mean, it's been a minute. Uh, so they started canceling our shows. My sense of time is really warped, though, so don't quote me on that specifically. <laughs> so what do you think about the trend of everything being virtual? I mean, do you think that's going to be something that's here to stay Um you know, let's say people can attend concerts. Do you think this trend will immediately die off, or do you think that's going to be a part of the picture in the new normal? Well, you know, I've actually been thinking about this quite a bit. So for our personal Star Farm page, um, I live in Grand Rapids now, and all of the, the fellows in Star Farm are in Lansing, and so I'm, like, physically separated as well as technologically separated because I don't know um gear well enough to like connect us online to play live for people so i've been doing um karaoke shows on our page <laughs> and it's been funny because it's actually been really it's been very well received it's been really fun because we have we've been playing for so long we have a lot of regulars we have a lot of um fans that we've made friends with and so it's been very cool to do these performances online and you can see people interacting, you can see people commenting, you can see people talking to each other and, you know, toasting each other while they drink in their living room. It's It's been a really invaluable tool to connect us all, but I also know that it, at the same time, it underlines what we're missing, which is with live music, it's that connection. It's the physical energy of all the people in the room and the the sheer physical feeling of the volume of the music. There are things that you just don't get when you're listening at home. And so I think on one hand, I really hope that it does continue for bands like, say, Radiohead is now doing um, live shows weekly. And they're, you know, they're from England. They don't tour to the States that often. There are all these bands that I'm getting to see now um, perform that I that I wouldn't be able to otherwise and that is amazing like i would love for that to continue but i don't think that it's ever going to cut off people's need to gather on mass and celebrate music and life as a group if that makes sense mm -hmm. um with all the talk of reopening america to a lot of people that means going back to work you know doing all of the main essential stuff but also the cultural things you know going to restaurants, going to bars? Do you think live music, you know, is an integral part of that conversation? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think live music drives nightlife. I mean, whether it be in the form of a band or it be in the form of a DJ, it's still music happening in front of you. And that, I mean, for myself, as a musician, as someone who loves music, like, that is 
crucial to my mental health and my sanity. And in terms of drawing people out of their buildings, out of their homes, into the public, like it's crucial for those businesses that house us. Um, I just, I feel like music is just too pure to die. <laughs> that sounds so cheesy, but I just feel like it's it's too essential to so many people's abilities to cope with their lives. I just feel like live music is is essential in that regard. And in terms of driving that nightlife, it's absolutely key. Thanks, Skyler. And thanks to Whitney, who was one of Skyler's predecessors as City Pulse's arts editor. That's it for this week. Thanks also to Skyler for producing this week's show. We'll be back next week. Till then, for City Pulse, this is Burl Schwartz. Thanks for tuning in and stay safe. <laughs>